Today's reading is Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says our God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Go on up to a mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The word of the Lord. The words time and tide trace their ancestry back to a common Indo-European root. And part of what they still have in common after going their separate ways all these years is the sense of ebbing and flowing. Time, like the receding waters of the ocean, bears all of us who are time's children farther and farther away from the near shore and closer and closer to those mysterious depths where we will come finally to our time's end. Those are the words of uh, Frederick Beekner in the introduction to his book, The Longing for Home. And so Advent, the, the season of the church year that we're in now, is the time of the church year when we are most consciously aware of what Beekner calls being time's children. We are aware that we live in, in the time between the times, between birth and death, between Christ's first and second coming, between the first Advent and the last. Advent is the season of the church year when we focus on what it means to live in the meantime, in the in, the in between time. That's why we read the Hebrew prophets, because they spoke to the people of God about living in the time between. The time between judgment and restoration. Between punishment and forgiveness. Between estrangement and reconciliation. Between law and gospel. And living between the times is hard. But that's where we are. And God is here too. And so Advent and Christmas are that time of year, I think, where most of us become most aware of our place in time, 
our place in, in the stream and the, the ebb and flow that is time. Mainly because we spend a lot of this time of year looking backward at what was. When you think of Christmas and, and how it should be celebrated, don't, don't you look back in, in time for, for clues? I know that I do. I, I look back to my grandma, Bergie, making krumkaka and gingerbread in her kitchen. I look back to her, her nativity set that she had sitting on her shelf with the old light bulb that she would light behind the star. I look back to Christmas Eve's at my grandma and grandpa Sandelman's house on 48th and Garfield, a fire roaring in the fireplace and, and their tree decorated with the large light bulb lights, not the small ones. And I loved that and thought it was so cool. I think back to waking up with my, my sister Laura at some ungodly hour to go downstairs. And what I remember most isn't the, the, the presents that my parents or Santa had left down there, but my Christmas stocking and what I knew was going to be in there. An orange, goldfish crackers, M&Ms, Hershey's Kisses. And I still look forward to getting those same things in my same stocking that's hanging on my parents' mantle with my name on it. I think of coming into this sanctuary on Christmas Eve when it's dark and cold and in here it's, it's light and orange and warm and singing carols and hearing the story of a baby born in Bethlehem once again. And so I look to these, these Christmases from the past, these moments from the past, these traditions, and these are the standards whereby Amy and I shape our own family's Christmas celebration each and every year. You know, and, and, and why is that? What is it about Christmases of, of the past that holds such a powerful sway? And so as I was reflecting on, on that reality and this passage from Isaiah this week, I, I turned to Beekner's The Longing for Home because I think in that book he, he captures something that is universally true. And, and when Beekner wrote this book, he was in his late 60s and, and he's now in his, his early 90s. And so he posited that all of us, you know, whether we really realize it or not, are, are looking for a place called home. And, and we spend our entire adult lives doing that, looking for a place called home. And home, he says, is a place that it can be real, it can be imagined, it can be seen through an idealized lens or not. But when Beekner wrote this book, he, he said that home doesn't have to be a place that you actually lived in, because for him it wasn't. It was his grandparents' house in suburban Philadelphia. But more than home being, being a place, it was, it was people, the people who filled that house. And especially one person, his grandmother, whom he called Naya. And home, he says, is that place where we belong, but also that it, in, in a sense, belongs to us. And home is the place where we we feel that everything's going to turn out well and all right, even if at the moment the circumstances of our life tell us that not everything is going well or all right. And so our sense of home, it, it develops during those years of, of innocence, like our first parents in Eden. And like our first parents in Eden, home is that place we long for, but to which we can never return, no matter how bad we want to or, or how hard we try. Our persistent and prevalent desire for home even has its own word, you know, homesickness. 
And, and, and of homesickness, there is a special species of, of the pain that comes, the bittersweet pain that comes from looking backward, n- nostalgia. And so Isaiah 40 has a word for people who are homesick, people who are longing for home, whether it's our, our, our forefathers and foremothers in the faith who lived thousands of years ago or us in this sanctuary today. And this is a word that says our true homecoming not, comes not just from looking to the past, but actually it comes from looking forward to the future. And it comes not just from looking inward at our sentiments and, and feelings, but, but actually comes from looking upward and outward as well. And so that's what we're going to look at in our passage this morning, how we can find home by looking not just back but forward and looking not just in but up and out. And so first, our desire for a true home is met by looking forward to the future and not just back to the past. And so to understand why I say that, we need to understand the context of Isaiah 40. And so Isaiah 40 is a word that was written and spoken to address a people who were living in exile. At this point, the kingdom of Judah has been conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Jerusalem has been raised, its walls knocked to the ground. The temple has been looted. All of its precious and sacred treasures have been taken away, and it's been burned. And the people, the leadership class, has been forcibly resettled in the cities of Babylon. And so Isaiah is speaking this prophetic word to a people in exile. And to be in exile is to be the opposite of home. Home is where you belong, and it belongs to you, as Buechner said. And, and home is where you think everything's going to turn out well, even if things aren't going well. But when you're in exile, it's exactly the opposite. You don't belong. Nothing really belongs to you. You don't know the customs. You don't uh, speak the language necessarily. You don't uh, like the same food or sing the same songs, celebrate the same holidays, worship the same God. And so to be in exile is to be in a a perpetual state of homesickness. And it seemed to them, as they were in the cities of Babylon, that nothing was going to turn out well. The Babylonians, they mocked the the, the Hebrew exiles. And they said, sing us one of the songs from your homeland. One of the joyful songs that we used to hear you sing. And the people complained because they said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord? in a foreign land. And so to be an exile is to be living somewhere, but to never feel at home. It's to be existing, but not really living, you know, surviving, not thriving. It's to be working, but it's fruitless. And so exile, it's it's marked by this estrangement, this futility, this frustration, this deep ennui. It's to be filled with a longing for home, to to get back to that place where you once belonged. And the problem, though, is is that when we look to the past for this home, when the exiles look to the past for this home, the past doesn't exist anymore. Now, of course, it's never as good as as we we thought it was. But more than that, the, the past is impenetrable. We can literally never go back and... For that reason, when our desire for home is rooted in the past alone, we will be perpetually homesick because we will never be able to go back home. Just like 
you know, I'll never be able to be nine years old again. And making cookies with my grandma or, or looking forward to, to going to Christmas Eve services at my grandparents' house and then coming to church. But the good news of Isaiah is that God's people don't just have to look backward anymore at their past home, which has been destroyed. And so at this point can only remind them of their grief, of their disappointment, of the past failures that have put them in this place. And so the voice of God calls out to this homeless and homesick people, comfort, comfort. See, looking backward to the past, to what's been damaged and lost and isn't fixable, it has filled God's people with inconsolable sorrow and regret, and into that situation of of no comfort, no consolation, comes the word of the Lord to Isaiah. Speak, cry, comfort, comfort my people. And so to to a people that have, have betrayed and rejected and abandoned their God, God says, you are my people. They have abandoned him, but God has not rejected them. And so the message of comfort means that, that we can stop looking backward to what was and start looking forward to what will be. And the reason that God's people can look forward and not backward isn't that their past sins weren't bad. They were. There's no denying it. There's no two ways about it. But the reason Isaiah says that they can look forward is that their sin has been dealt with. In verse 2, it says her warfare has ended. And this word for warfare, is, it's like a term of hard labor or, or hard service, like you've been pressed into service. And so that time of serving, of hard labor is over. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so when we hear that, 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 that Israel has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, Isaiah isn't saying, well, God punished you twice as bad as you deserve. So now you're, you're sort of worthy to come back. This term double, it actually means something different. It has a couple different connotations. One of them is, is double. It, the word is, is the same as for to fold over. So like, just like we fold a piece of paper in half, and there's this perfect you know, correspondence between the two halves of the paper. Uh, Isaiah is saying that there's a perfect correspondence between the sins of God's people and, 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 and the punishment or, or the judgment or the justice that they have received. But also this word double, it evokes another image. And one is that when you um, had finally, you know, say you owed someone some money, you had a creditor or something, and you finally paid it off, uh, a receipt would be folded over in half and pinned to your door. And that was your sign that your bill was paid in full. And here's the thing. This promise that Isaiah makes of the end of exile for God's people, their exile actually didn't end when the first exile started returning back to Jerusalem after about 50 years and, and rebuilding. And the, uh, the, the Anglican New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has argued persuasively that when, when Jesus came, his, his message and his ministry actually make a lot of sense when, when we understand that despite the exile technically being over and Jews returning to Jerusalem and starting to rebuild and even the temple beginning to be rebuilt, that that God's people still felt like they hadn't fully returned, that their exile had not ended. They were home, but but it wasn't exactly like home, if that makes sense. There was something still not right about this place were promises that God had made to and through the prophets that had yet to be fulfilled. 
And that's why, you know, the, the, the writers of the Gospels have associated this passage with John the Baptist and with Jesus. You know, that this voice crying in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord's coming, that that had, had yet to be fulfilled, that, that make a highway in, in the desert for our Lord. Because we believe that it's only in Jesus that we can truly stop looking backward with regret and start looking forward with hope. Because only he can do what Isaiah promised that God would do. Right? Forgive the sins of the past. Only on the cross can we say that, that Jesus has received double for the sins of the world. And it's only when we hear his voice calling us that we, we have heard the voice of God's comfort. Jesus sets us free from the past of, of, a, of a so-called home to which we can never return in order that we might hope for a home in the future again. And life is so much more joyful, so much more enjoyable when we have something to look forward to, isn't it? I mean, it's one of the only things that helps us get through the darkness of winter is to have something to look forward to. And this time of year, this is, is a time of year too where there's things hopefully that we have to look forward to. You know, what are you looking forward to this Advent season? You know, is it just getting some time off, a week off, a few days off at Christmas, a break from school? Is it getting to see old friends and family, eating your favorite food, seeing the joy on your kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews' faces when they open that present that you knew they wanted and you got them? Is it just plopping down in front of the TV and watching one of your favorite Christmas movies? You know, the stop motion, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, or Home Alone, watching the bricks and paint cans fly again, or, or maybe the best Christmas movie of all, Die Hard. Yippee-ki-yay. So Advent is not only about looking back. It's about looking back while looking forward forward into the future, in expectation of the coming of Jesus. And so a true, a true word of comfort, it sets us free from, from the regrets of the past, and it lets us look forward to God's future. And so here's what Isaiah says, this is what you have to look forward to. He says, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." So it's this great leveling that's taking place, this flattening of the ground. And you say, maybe that, that sounds like Nebraska or Iowa or eastern Colorado. That's not exciting. That sounds like a terrible promise. Mountains are beautiful and valleys, the Grand Canyon, it's majestic. I want more of that when God comes, not more, you know, flat level ground. That's just boring. But, you know, that's us here when we're just looking at it. But when you've got to cross mountains or you've got to go through canyons, you give everything for, for level ground. When you're running the Twin Cities Marathon and you cross the Mississippi River and then you have 6.2 miles to run uphill, your body would give anything for Fargo at that moment. My gosh, just give me flat level ground so I can make it. And so people who have been through hardship, people who have been in, in the crushing, pounding marathon of exile, they want nothing more than a flat, easy return. And so what Isaiah is inviting us to envision is, is then an easy road for God. It's the return of God to Zion. And so the true homecoming that he promises isn't of God's people to their homeland, actually, but it is of God's return to his people, 
prepare a highway, prepare a way for the Lord. So it's not a highway in the desert so you can come home. It's prepare a highway in the wilderness so God can come home to you. Because here's the truth. The, the only homecoming that truly matters is Christ coming to make his home with us in, in the hearts and in the lives of his people. And when that happens, then the glory of the Lord is revealed, which is Christ's overwhelming, his awe-inspiring presence. And, and so when you've encountered Christ in that way, when you've welcomed him into your heart, you will discover that being home means being wherever he is, which can be anywhere. Homecoming means not so much that, that we return to a place from our past where we belong, but that actually we meet Christ. And he is the person to whom our past and present and future belongs. With him, we are home. We belong because ultimately we're his. And even if things aren't going well, we, we know that in Christ everything will work out well. As Paul tells us, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to God's purpose. So the promise then is, is that home for us is wherever Jesus is, even and, and probably especially in the wilderness. And Isaiah, this great promise, you know, prepare, prepare in the wilderness a way for the Lord. It's, it's, it's a construction of a royal road. In the ancient Near East, you know, roads were a, were a rare thing. Mostly they were a luxury. They didn't have to joke about, you know, two seasons, winter and road construction. I mean, there, there were just not many roads. And so when there was a road, you knew something special was happening. A king is coming to town, his entourage, and all of the glory and splendor that came with it. And so the message for us here is this. If, if we want to be home, if we want to go home, don't just, you know, look at the past but look to the future and prepare yourself now to welcome Jesus. And what does that look like? And this is where the metaphor of road construction is so helpful because Isaiah talks about this great leveling, you know, hills being made low, valleys being lifted up. And so there's, there's a leveling taking place which says that to welcome Christ into our hearts, that we, we don't judge the state of our souls by, by the peaks or valleys of our spiritual or emotional condition. That just because we feel good or one time we were at camp and had a spiritual high or something like that, well, we have to feel that to, to be close to God. Or, or maybe if what's maybe more common that we're feeling low, lonely, depressed, that doesn't mean that we're far from God. Preparing to welcome Christ means a great leveling where it matters not how we're feeling, but if we're faithful. And Eugene Peterson, in, in the message, he paraphrases the next part of our passage as he says, smooth out the ruts, clear out the rocks. And so preparing for God also means clearing out the rocks. It means ruthlessly eliminating sin and, and, and disobedience from our lives because if we want to look forward and be prepared to welcome Christ into our hearts, we've got to eliminate any of that junk, that disobedience that would keep us from him. And preparing for God also means that we lament about what is broken in this world. And the necessity of lament is actually the bridge between the, this first part of the sermon and the last. Because in verses 6 through 8, you know, prepare, prepare, we're told in, in, in verse 5, you know, prepare this way for the Lord to come. And then in verses 6 through 8, we get a lament, a lament for human frailty. A voice says, cry out and say, what shall I cry? People are grass. They're nothing. 
This message of, of hope and return and God is coming back, isn't this going to be exciting, comes to a people who are longing for home. But these people, which includes you and me, we're weak, we're frail, we'll fade, we'll disappoint. When the breath of God blows upon us, which we think, oh, this is going to be, you know, the spirit blowing in and giving life, new life, abundant life. Instead of it bringing that, it, it brings death and disappointment. And if you've spent any time in the church with people who were supposed to get this but don't, you'll understand this lament pointedly. And so part of Advent, besides preparing, you know, leveling, be faithful, don't worry about our emotions, get rid of sin from our lives, it also means just naming the things that are broken in this world to God. Broken in our lives, broken in our relationships. And so part of Advent, a big part of Advent, are these prayers of complaint, saying, God, this isn't right. This is why this world just doesn't feel like home to me. And comfort, it also means, though, not just looking inward at ourselves and our brokenness, but it means that we also then turn and look upward and outward to the God who saves. Because the lament is true. People are like grass. Our loveliness is like the flowers of the field. It's temporary. It's fleeting, here today, gone tomorrow. And so the truth is that when we look inside of ourselves for home, we'll never find it. Because all the things that we think are within our power or our, our control, that we can, we can build a sense of, of belonging and belong to us and everything's going to turn out well, everything internally that we have that we look to for that is fleeting. All of them could disappear at a moment. Our beauty will fade. Our money, you know, we lose a job and then all of a sudden paycheck to paycheck at best. Our health, which we take for granted, can be gone in an instant. A relationship can end. Our status, being a somebody, eventually all of us turn into a nobody, forgotten, whoever we were. The next generation or two doesn't care. Everything that is within us that we think will make us feel like we belong, we're at home, everything's going to turn out well. Eventually, it will fade. It will crumble. And so if we want to go home, if we want to belong, if we want everything to, to turn out well, have that sense, then we can't look inward, but we've got to look upward and outward to the God of verses 9 through 11. Isaiah says, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The language here is, is, is pure gospel. When the Old Testament was first translated from, from um, uh, Hebrew to Greek, this word for herald of good news, we hear it twice here. It's, it's actually the word that gets used in the New Testament for this word gospel. You know, we've got so much church history and, and Christianity behind us that the word gospel for us, it's just synonymous with a Christian message or someone saying something about God or Jesus. But in its original context, this word gospel, which gets rendered good news, glad tidings, etc., it was a word for a royal announcement, sort of breaking royal news. And so good news, you know, was something that someone would share when a, when a new king or, king or emperor had ascended to the throne. Good news. Good news was, you know, that your armies had gone out and they'd won a great war, defeated and vanquished the enemy. 
So the same thing is happening here in Isaiah 40, that the gospel is the royal announcement of the return of God, of God's arrival as king. And the basic content of the gospel of Isaiah 40 is this, behold your God. Behold your God. The Swiss reformer, John Calvin said that this expression, behold your God, includes the sum of our happiness, which consists solely in the presence of God. It, it brings along with it an abundance of blessings, and if we are destitute of it, we must be utterly miserable and wretched. And though blessings of every kind are richly enjoyed by us, yet if we are estranged from God, everything must tend to our destruction. Why? Because the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So behold your God. That is the good news of Advent. When we look at the baby in the manger, we can say, behold your God. When we look at that figure hanging on the cross, battered and hideous, we can say, behold your God. And the God whom we behold in Jesus beautifully combines what we see at the end of our passage, which is both God's majesty and his mercy his glory, and his meekness. And the language here at the end, it it evokes the image of a king returning triumphantly home from battle. He's won the victory. Isaiah says, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. God has gone out there. He's won the victory. And it says that, that he's returning home with the spoils of war. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. And so what are these spoils? What has God won? But, but the real question is, and what are these spoils? It's who are they? And the answer, the surprising answer is it's us. It's his people. God has gone out there and fought to win us back. And so Isaiah says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And so the conquering king is our shepherd. Our strong warrior is is also the one who carries us and speaks tenderly to us words of comfort. Doesn't that perfectly capture who Jesus is? And this is why his presence is our true home. He is the one who is able to bring us home. He's the one who fights to bring us home, who wants to bring us home, so much so that he'll stop at nothing to do so. You can say, well, what difference does that make for us? And, and, and we've already seen in this passage that it says, uh, you know, that we need to prepare to welcome him. But these verses at the end tell us that we also need to share, to share the hope we have in Jesus Christ, to share the good news that wherever and, and whenever we are with him, we are home. And so how do we do that? I think this time of year, it's particularly easy. People love Christmas. That's one thing we really got going for us as Christians. We, we have the best holiday that there is. It's awesome. And so we have a chance to invite people who might be far from God, might be estranged from the church, to enter into the warmth and light of, of God's presence in this sanctuary, to hear the good news of great joy that is for all people. And to meet Jesus, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, and get to hear him say, as he says to all of us, welcome home. Welcome home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.